0: Support for Healthcare Americana comes from Freedom Healthworks. With Freedom Healthworks, physicians, employers, and patients can thrive in direct care. Visit freedomhealthworks.com to start your journey into direct care today. From Freedom Healthworks, it's Healthcare Americana, a show about innovators, idealists, and pioneers in healthcare. Hi everyone, welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks, a direct care accelerator helping physicians across the country start and manage their DPC clinics. Today's show is a warning to those doctors out there that are overworked and asked to place their trust in their employer. Our guest, Dr. Leah Houston, was a victim of professional identity theft when her previous employer continued to submit claims under her name long after she left the company and even after she left that state. As you'll find out, there's little recourse as she was able to find out what was happening, but a considerable cost of time and money to her in order to fight the hospital's unethical behavior.
1: These health systems have their way of doing things and they have some bean counter at the top saying well how can we squeeze the most revenue out of this situation and they don't give a crap they don't care about the individual they don't care about the nurses the doctors the patients they do not care as long as they are collecting money and as long as nobody's bothering them meaning they have no lawsuits or regulatory issues they need to deal with so they do whatever it is they need to do to make it as easy as possible for them and occasionally somebody like me who had a lapsed license gets screwed in the meantime.
0: Dr. Houston, your story is one of what I call despair, redemption, ultimately triumph. It's also a story that is more prevalent than we understand. I want you to take us back to the years to when your professional identity was stolen by your previous hospital employer. Tell us the story.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm an emergency doctor and I worked at several different hospitals as a locum tenants doc. I've worked um, in Florida, California, New York is where I've been licensed. And, you know, I just figured if I go to work and I take good care of people, then the hospital and the credentialing bodies would make sure everything was done correctly and they would bill correctly And then I found out that my professional identity, my Medicare, Medicaid numbers, my NPI numbers, my medical licensing numbers, those numbers that are used to bill for my services were being used after I left the hospital. And so it led to a huge problem for me. You know, the federal government thought I was practicing medicine without a license because I was no longer licensed in that state. And it was then, you know, I had already felt something was wrong I had been practicing for, I think, seven or eight years at that point. But it was that moment that I realized that the employment process is the thing that's wrong. Being owned and controlled by somebody else as a practicing physician, allowing somebody else to document and discern whether or not your services are being billed and paid for and whether or not you perform those services, giving that away to somebody else, not having control over that is one of the major problems with our current healthcare system.
0: So you were, just to see if I can, can summarize that for everybody, you were working at a hospital, and you signed over a lot of documents called your credentialing packet there. I want to talk a little bit about that process and what exactly that means, but you basically gave free reign for the hospital to bill your patients underneath you so you wouldn't have to worry about it. Is that fair to say?
1: Well, it was really required. I wouldn't be able to work there unless I gave those rights away, partially because of this cumbersome, over-administratively burdensome process of insurance and Medicare and Medicaid and billing and coding. They have, I don't know, probably hundreds of people doing that at every hospital right. for the people who are giving the services. So,
0: Right. So, Doctors are required to do this, uh, which again, there's there's kind of little red flags being sent off all over the place. If people are like, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like this is right. They shouldn't be doing that. So they start billing under you your name. You take another position out of the state. You move states. And lo and behold, you move back to that previous state and then find out that, oh, you can't get a medical license.
1: Well, my medical license was easily reinstated. It was a very brief period of time that I had no license. So it was very strange because they let me reinstate my license, no problem. Um, But when I went to bill for Medicare and Medicaid, or when the health system went to bill on behalf of me for Medicare and Medicaid, it alerted the Center for Medical Sciences, CMS, that, well, this doctor was billing when she had no license, and now she's billing again with a license. She's not allowed to bill. So it wasn't that I wasn't licensed to practice. I just wasn't able to bill for Medicare and Medicaid because they thought I had been practicing without a license. It appeared as if I was, even though it wasn't me. It was just the health system billing for my fake services that were never
0: rendered by me. So you get that notice from CMS. What were your next steps? What'd you do right then and there?
1: I called hundreds of lawyers asking somebody to take my case.
0: <laughs> it oh, took several months. So you went to court with them.
1: Well, I didn't go to court, um, but, you know, so just to let you know, the letter was basically like, you can't bill anymore. Your privileges have been taken. So I sent a letter. Why were my privileges taken? I overnighted it, certified mail. Weeks later, I get a response. Because you were practicing medicine without a license. Oh, crap. Okay. Another certified overnight letter. Five weeks later, well, well, give me proof that I was practicing without a license. So it was a very long process of actually even finding out why this happened and how this happened. And that, but then once I had the facts, which were they thought I was practicing without a license and I wasn't, I started making phone calls to lawyers. And so um, I you know, went through probably 30 or 40 people who reviewed my case before I found um, a, a firm that uh, accepted my case on contingency Um, Which was what I was looking for because I knew that there was a lot of losses. There were a lot of damages I wasn't able to work for five months. I was put into debt. I you know I actually was in the process of considering purchasing new property At the time this was happening and I lost that opportunity because I didn't know it was gonna happen Um, And so yeah, eventually after back and forth we reached a settlement agreement where they admitted that they made a mistake and they paid me a settlement It was nowhere near the losses that I had, but it at least was like something to make me feel like, okay, at least I am not totally screwed and now I can move forward and start practicing again.
0: And that was with the hospital. The hospital said, oh, sorry about that. Here's a settlement.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: And that was it. That wasn't it. That was it. Sorry for ruining your career, taking your identity, um, putting your professional reputation at risk here. Did you hear from any patients during that time?
1: No. So what ended up happening, so part of my credentialing packet, and this is part of the credentialing packet for most employed physicians in health systems. Um, I actually wasn't employed at the time. I was an independent contractor, but similar, similar types of agreements. There was a, a packet in there that basically said, you will be the supervising physician for these 15 or 20 nurse practitioners and physician's assistants. Um, sign here agreeing that you'll supervise them. And so when I signed that document, it was my understanding that they're saying that when I'm actually supervising them and I'm actually aware of the case and I'm actually present and I'm actually able to see the patient, then I'm going to be agreeing to supervise them. But they took that list and said, oh, we're just going to sign her her name on this chart. Wow. We're going to make her the supervising doctor on this case, even though she wasn't even there. That's a medical liability. You know, fortunately, I haven't had any malpractice cases from those patients that were seen. But if there were a a malpractice case, if any of those patients ever pulled those records, my name is probably still on those charts. I don't know if the health system went in there and took my name off of those charts after this was done. I wasn't able to demand that as part of my settlement agreement, even though I asked for it because they weren't my cases. So it would have been a HIPAA violation for them to give me any proof of that. Uh, so it was a very complicated situation. Um, and it was, it, it was identity theft at every level. It was professional identity theft. Whoever was taking care of those patients was essentially stealing and pawning out my medical license right. as if it was their own.
0: Yeah. And that's interesting. I even think about the malpractice part of that. I mean, how shocked would you have been if you're living in a different state all of a sudden a letter shows up that said you've been named on a lawsuit for malpractice at an employer that you haven't been there for a year or two? Like, what in the world just happened? In
1: a case it, that I never took care of.
0: On a case you knew nothing about. And then they have the gall to say, oh, it's a HIPAA violation if we show you these charts that your name's on anyways. That just <laughs> – I mean – Part of the reason why we, you know, someday we should switch to videos. My jaw is just on the floor right now saying, oh my gosh, it's a circus. I mean, this is kind of stranger than fiction. So even if you're a physician and you say, okay, I have Dr. Houston as my uh, supervising physician, I don't know who that person is, but that person never said anything. You never heard anything from those, from those, I guess, junior physicians?
1: No, no. Um, the thing is, is I, in my opinion, this is a process issue. These health systems have their way of doing things and they have some bean counter at the top saying, well, how can we squeeze the most revenue out of this situation? And they say, okay, these people are going to do this and these people are going to do that and send me the reports on Monday. And they don't give a crap. They don't care about the individual. They don't care about the nurses, the doctors, the patients. They do not care as long as they are collecting money and as long as nobody's bothering them, meaning they have no lawsuits or uh, legal or regulatory issues they need to deal with. So they do whatever it is they need to do to make it as easy as possible for them. And occasionally, somebody like me who had a lapsed license gets screwed in the meantime. The issue is most of us as physicians keep our license and we move from job to job. And we assume that after we leave whatever our previous employer was, that they're no longer using our professional identity. I cannot tell you, there has been probably close to 30 or 40 people who have contacted me that have said that this has happened to them, but because they remained licensed... It never caused a long-term problem. They were able to fix the paperwork mistake. So if those 30 or 40 people somehow heard my story and found me and reached out to me, how many thousands of doctors out there are having fraudulent bills written under their name? This is, in my opinion, one of the higher cases of, of Medicare and Medicaid fraud that are out there. And this is you know, part of why I'm building what I'm building.
0: Right, right. So two points just out of what you just said caught my attention there. This was your term. You just labeled that a paperwork mistake. Is that what physicians think? This, oh, this is just a, it, it's just a billing error. It's just a filing error. It's just a paperwork error.
1: That's what they want us to think. They yeah. want us to, oh, we're so sorry. Oh, Oopsie daisy. You know, get over it. Stop complaining. This isn't that big of a deal. you you got your settlement agreement, why don't you shut up? They actually did try to put a gag clause in the settlement agreement saying that I could never talk about this. um, And I refused.
0: Good for you. Good for you. Um, It was a
1: hard no for me because, you know, it's important for people to understand that this has happened.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and nothing really admits guilt like saying, oh, well, we're going to talk about this, but you can't tell anybody about this because how would they think people are going to rise up with pitchforks? I mean, you know, this must, like you said, this must be going on much more prevalent than what people have even told you on it. This reminds me of a theme we've talked about a lot within Freedom Health Works and then on the show too, that hospitals and insurance companies want to treat physicians like commodities. Anybody with a stethoscope, anybody with a white lab coat, you're all the same. Does Absolutely. this play into that narrative? I mean, oh, it seems totally. like an open and shut.
1: I was actually quoted in Forbes in a Forbes article because I coined the hashtag RVU factory. So <laughs> for those of you who are you know are familiar, RVUs are are the relative value units that are placed on every single physician's service and how we are essentially commoditized and you know a a, a price is given to the services that we provide when we are employed and when we take insurance. And, you know, I felt like I was working in an RVU factory. All I was there for was to generate RVUs for the factory. I was a factory worker on an assembly line, and the patients were being pushed through the assembly line. So, yeah, look it up. Hashtag RVU factory. I totally agree 100%. Yeah,
0: it's uh, all about productivity, throughput, finding the bottlenecks, and uh, treating patients like widgets. But uh, speaking of patients, How does this type of a practice affect patient care? Now, we touched upon it a little bit to see if you've heard from any of your previous patients, but act like I am in the hospital, I'm getting seen by a physician, yet I look at my chart and it says your name on it. I don't know you. You've obviously been gone. What should be going through my head in that case if I'm a patient saying, wait a minute, this this doesn't add up. I should be asking questions about this, right?
1: Well, so this is the whole thing, you know, Patients have no control over their health records. They have no understanding of what's really going on. You know, they get this, if they ask for their records and they get them, which is a very rare experience because it's very difficult to get your records, they get the stack of papers, 98% of which are BS, nonsense, that doesn't matter. Um, And then the two or three papers that do have the information they want in there might very well be incorrect. It could say that they had a right leg amputation when they really had a left leg amputation. How do you correct that as a patient when you are not in control of your
0: health records? Right. That's, that's a million dollar question right there. And you get some physicians who are like, oh, I put everything up on the screen right here so that they can double check them. And other ones are like, no, I'm never going to show a chart to somebody. What if there's something embarrassing about it? And my response is, if you're writing something embarrassing about your patient, you should probably tell them that because that could affect their health. If they're overweight, if they have bad, uh, if they have bad, you know, skin issues, whatever it is, you should probably let them know. Again, that relationship, that doctor-patient relationship. So, it, it really is mind-boggling how you were able to identify this, and then you spend five months contacting so many attorney offices, and you know, it's shocking that nobody really thought that this was a, a clear, open, and shut case. What was the kind of feedback from from the law side of this when you were talking to attorneys?
1: We're fighting a tsunami. This was a very large health system. So me, single sole doctor who they could give two craps about fighting the tsunami. And so it wasn't that they didn't think that I had a case. It's that they thought it would be a very difficult case to take on and as I said, I was looking for somebody who would take it in contingency, meaning there was not going to be a retainer that they could continue, continually collect for me. And so in their mind, they're like, I don't know how long this is going to take. I don't want to risk my, you know, I don't want to risk that. Um, you know, I was considering hiring somebody on a retainer at one point, and I'm glad I didn't have to. But, you know, attorneys uh, deserve to be compensated for their time, just like doctors do. So I think it was a little bit of that.
0: Yeah. And again, we hear a lot of from the doctors like, you know, I'm never going to challenge my hospital system because they have hundreds of millions of dollars to throw at me and I'm just an individual physician. But again, the individual physicians aren't talking to present a united front. So a lot of of potential fixes out there, a lot of potential problems. You know, I mentioned earlier that this was also a story of redemption and triumph. And we're going to hear the redemption and triumph part of the story when we return to Healthcare Americana after this brief message from our sponsors. There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no needle, no scalpel, no stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Healthcare Americana. I'm talking to Dr. Leah Houston, an emergency physician whose professional identity was stolen by a hospital employer, but then she discovered it. And now she is entering that triumphant phase over this diversity. And she created a company that helps other physicians avoid this nefarious billing practices and the commoditization, as we talked about, of medical personnel and help keep their identity secure. So Dr. Houston, run us through your motivations and the light bulb moment when you knew you could help others avoid becoming victims of this professional identity theft and led you to founding your company, HPEC.
1: Awesome, thank you, yeah. So the credentialing process, when you are going to either become enrolled in an insurance company or become an employee as a physician, that process is a two to six month process process where you're proving that you went to medical school, proving that you have a license, proving that, you know, you got vaccinated. You know, like imagine if you went to the airport to fly to Europe and you have your passport in your hand and they take your passport and then they say, wait a second, we also need a copy of your birth certificate And we need a copy of your state, you know, license, and we need a copy of your vaccinations and sit down in that room over there while we call your pediatrician to make sure this vaccination certificate is correct. And while we call the hospital you were born in, that's basically what's happening every time a physician wants to move or change jobs. And in my opinion, this is a restraint of trade on our right to work as practicing doctors. It's a restraint of trade on our ability to say, you know what, I don't want to work here. I want to work somewhere else. That process is so burdensome from an administrative perspective, it kind of keeps doctors trapped in these jobs that treat them like crap in these RVU factory jobs. So, throughout this process, you know, I came across a new secure technology called self sovereign identity technology that has the ability to allow a physician or anybody for that matter to be the primary source of verified truth regarding our identity. And so what do I mean by that? Instead of a new job or a hospital having to call your medical school and verify that your medical degree is real and having to fax since is real, you as the individual physician now have a digital copy, digital proof of those credentials that are just as valid, if not more valid, than you've been using in the past. And that's only made possible by self-sovereign identity technology, which is distributed ledger-based. It's a blockchain-based technology. And so, yeah, you know, when I realized that this tool now existed, and I realized the potential for it, I set out to build it for the physician community as the first step to building a lot of other things, actually.
0: Yeah, we got to start somewhere. And we're kind of talking uh, what I call backstage about the overall vision of how do we, how do we fix healthcare, uh, Going attacking it from these different innovative ways, from a direct care standpoint, from a blockchain standpoint. So we got to start somewhere. And this is, this is great to hear about. But you mentioned the magic word in there, blockchain. And I want to make sure that we understand what that means because there's a lot of misconceptions around it. Most people think of blockchain as, as some type of cryptocurrency think of Bitcoin or whatever that is, but it has a lot of different applications. So walk us through that in a very simplistic way about what blockchain means and how that applies to digital security.
1: Awesome. So, you know, you mentioned cryptocurrency. And so when we think about what cryptocurrency is, it's essentially, you know, digital transfer of assets. You know, right now, When we are transferring ACH transfers from our bank to another bank um, or using our credit card online, we are making digital transactions of actual value. And it's the same thing that you do with cryptocurrency. The difference is the technology behind it. What's going on in the back end? In our current internet environment, in order to transfer money from one person to another, you need a third party. So that third party might be MasterCard, it might be the Bank of America, it might be PayPal, but you need an intermediary to establish trust between those two parties. Um, It's the way uh, that things have been going on since the internet was launched into the American public in uh, 1991. So now why is blockchain something that's different and important in this discussion? It allows for secure, direct, Transfer of any digital assets. And when I say direct, I mean peer to peer. So we talk about direct primary care, we talk about direct care. That's what this is about. It's about doctor and patient communicating directly, Mm
0: -hmm. keeping
1: the third parties out, keeping the middlemen out. So when we discuss documentation of who we are digitally, that is one of our digital assets. Our credentials as physicians is a digital asset now. Uh, we can digitally prove that we are who we say we are in a peer-to-peer fashion without requiring a third party to constantly and repetitively verify that that is true. And I can go into the weeds on how this works from a technological standpoint, if you want me to, but it's based on a a distributed ledger that's immutable. And, uh, you know, for the tech people, I'm going to try to simplify this. And for the non-tech people, I hope you understand it. But essentially, when any transaction of any digital asset is uh, placed in an immutable fashion, you can't erase it. And so when that is also copied onto thousands of computers in a distributed way, and that's why they call it distributed ledger technology, you have thousands of computers that have an immutable record of transferred assets that cannot be erased, and that creates trust. Because now you know that what you're looking at is the truth. And so that is how, you know, that's a simple uh, explanation of how the back end of this technology works. But for those who don't really want to get into the weeds, it's just, it's a way for an individual to uh, transfer truth and transfer digital assets to another individual uh, without a need for a third party.
0: It sounds like, obviously, based on our previous conversation, there's a lot of need for that, especially from the physician level. So, zeroing in on that. So, say that, again, you're a new physician and you want to complete this credentialing process. Give us a brief overview of what that would look like when I join a new hospital system. And for some reason, I don't want to go to DPC or direct care route. I haven't found the light yet, so to speak. But when I present your technology and then my information within your technology to a potential employer. What does that look like and how does the employer respond to that so far?
1: I want to share that, but I also want to share how this can help the DPC community as well, because that's uh, something people ask me on a regular basis. But, you know, as an employed physician, uh, when you, so we're building our MVP right now. So you'll be able to log in, sign up, obtain your identity. You'll be able to get your credentials verified in your digital identity wallet. And then when you want to go work somewhere and they want to verify that your credentials are real, you can give them permissioned access to those credentials. Now, for those of you who are working right now, you probably are familiar with CAQH. So CAQH is a centralized website that basically people, a physician can go to, can give them all of their credentials. They hold those credentials for them. And then when a hospital or employer wants to see those credentials, CAQH, that third party, that middleman, allows them access to your credentials as a doctor. Now, how often are they showing them? Who knows? Who are they showing them to? Who knows? You have no rights. You have no say.
0: There's no accountability. Uh, But we are being
1: forced to use Right. We're being forced to use this third-party application. We hope that it's secure. What are they doing with our data? We have no idea. Um, So essentially, it would be the same process, but instead of CAQH being the middleman, you as an individual doc would be the one who would be giving this permission to these health systems. And that's the only way you can have control over your employment rights. Otherwise, somebody else is controlling it.
0: Control is a big, big part of the medical professional from personalities to what is going to, how am I going to treat this type of a patient? So, I'm glad you brought up that word here. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and, and this is a really interesting um, term that that you've used in the past, is the Hippocratic Oath 2.0. Yeah. How Absolutely. does that fit? What, is, what exactly is that? And how does that fit? Because that is... is it's very profound, so I'll, I'll let you take it from there. But um, I wanted to make sure we talk about that because it has applications beyond this conversation.
1: Yeah, well, as physicians, we all took a version of the Hippocratic Oath. And when we said that oath, we made a promise to put our patients first above all else, um, to put their interests first when we make our decisions. And in my opinion, our current ecosystem. I don't even really want to call it a healthcare system, but the current way of of doing business in in the system is corrupt. It's it's been corrupted. Uh, There's malaligned incentives. There's third parties that have wedged themselves between doctor and patient. And most of those uh, instances are coming from this new digital era, Mm -hmm. where we are now required by law to use EHR we're required by law to use e-prescription databases. They're monitoring us. They're surveilling our behaviors, our prescribing patterns, our referral patterns. They're monitoring our patients' behaviors. They're doing data analytics to try to find ways to deny services to patients, to deny payment to doctors. And now, in my opinion, it is our responsibility as physicians to stop that process and to build solutions that prevent the ongoing surveillance of our practice and our, our, the private relationships that we have with our patients. Our patients need to trust us. And if they are afraid that walking into your office, you're going to be putting all of their private protected health information into a system that is then going to be potentially used against them in some way, they may lie. They may be afraid to share um, the most intimate details of their life that you need to know as a doctor to provide the best care. And so, in my opinion, Hippocratic Oath 2.0 is, um, it's the new Hippocratic Oath that needs to consider the, you know, the digital privacy of our our relationships that we have with our patients.
0: Very timely, too, because we're starting to see instances of this social currency, uh, as they call it, pop up. The Chinese are implementing it a few months ago and see how, um, oh, how people are towing the line, I guess, how good a corporate uh, citizens they are. and social citizens make sure they're not causing any unrest. So anybody who says, well, the information I put into my Fitbit can never, you know, what what good is that? Those are having real implications, right? Anything you do digitally like you said that's stored somewhere and that is used and we're starting to see that oh, the new credit ratings are coming from everything you do online and people are looking at this to see how likely you are to repay a loan, how likely you are to be a repeat customer. I mean, the level of privacy invasion is very, very scary out there to a lot of people who want to take a look at it. So within that Hippocratic Oath 2.0 conversation leads us into what's going to be our last question. How does your work, how does blockchain fit into the DPC model?
1: So um, self-sovereign identity is a privacy-preserving technology. Um, it's something that's running in the background. So we might not even know uh, what's going on when this is actually occurring. But, you know, right now, you know, we're being expected to document what's happening with our patients. We are being expected to use e-prescription at, at times for certain pharmacies. You know, if you're a DPC doc that does your own in-office dispensing, awesome. But uh, many people can't do that. Many states don't allow for that. Um, even if you are ordering a test for a patient that has insurance and you're they're using their insurance to get that test. Now your name, your professional identity is now owned by whichever laboratory that is, whether it be quest labs or lab core. And now they're tracking you. They're monitoring you. Uh, they're tying what you're doing, um, to your name and your professional likeness. Um, and so in this new world that we are building, uh, in order to create, Privacy in order to prevent the surveillance of our behaviors and our relationships with our patients, whether we are independent or whether we are employed, we need to adopt these new self sovereign identity tools when we log into these systems so that our privacy is preserved. And we need to build the new systems that only adopt these privacy preserving tools. So um, I want to fast forward a bit because identity and credentialing is really only the first base layer, it's the foundational layer of what we're doing. Um, I want to take a zoomed out look at what the future we're trying to build overall. And that's essentially a decentralized network of physician services as a DPC doctor, who are the cardiologists that are available to your patients? Who are the pediatricians? Who are the neurologists? Who are the neurosurgeons? Do they see private patients? What do they charge? Do they accept insurance or not? When are they next available? Right now, we have these siloed centralized systems that own and control this. Hospitals own and control a lot of their employed doctors in this way. We have other applications like ZocDoc and health grades that have our professional information out there. If we could create a network where we use the self-sovereign identity tool, where we know that each doctor who has a professional identity in the system has built their identity themselves and is actually who they say they are, and they've chosen to be a part of this network in order to build a decentralized referral network uh, for their patients, in order to build a decentralized network of communication, you know, you talked about a united front this type of tool, because it's a complete identity tool, it can be used to communicate with other physicians and come up with policies and practice guidelines collectively as a community of doctors rather than allowing the regulatory bodies to impose their idea of what, uh, what good practices are. And so the zoomed out vision for HPAC is a completely decentralized private system where doctors and patients are no longer being surveilled and where they communicate directly with each other in a secure fashion. And so that's what we're building.
0: Yeah, I love it. Uh, Obviously a big fan of physician-led movements here, not relying on any type of regulatory authority or the government to solve our problems for us because it usually goes the opposite way there. But I love it. Physicians banding together to take care of patients, take their profession back. It doesn't get better than that by any means. Well, Dr. Houston, I appreciate your time joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Thanks for having me. It was really great. Once again, that's Dr. Leah Houston, emergency physician, CEO, founder of HPEC. Healthcare Americana is powered by Freedom HealthWorks, managed by Melissa Turpin, produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro. Send us your thoughts at info at healthcareamericana.com. I'm Christopher Habig. Thanks for listening. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry, and we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. And hey, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor, let us know that too. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.